how to inherit a retirement account without paying a boatload of taxes all at once, how to use sound business principles to make the most of your family's money, and why you might be able to buy an extra beer this year courtesy of the Social Security Administration. This is Your Money, Your Wealth. Today on Your Money, Your Wealth, Rachel Sheedy, the editor of Kiplinger's Retirement Report, tells Joe and Big Al some of the rules and reasons a non-spouse beneficiary might use a stretch IRA when inheriting retirement money. Family Inc. author Doug McCormick talks to Joe and Big Al about the Army-Navy game. Oh, and about treating your family finances like a successful business, too. Also coming up, the fellas answer emails about retirement contribution limits, taxation on stock dividends and splits, and the voodoo of overfunding life insurance. They'll also talk about Social Security and Medicare changes in 2017 and the do's and don'ts of saving. Here are certified financial planner Joe Anderson and Big Al Clopine CPA. Thanks so much for joining us. Happy 2017. Starting out the year hot today. Hot, Al. Hot. Why do you say that? I don't know. Because it's a new year. Yeah, it's a new Fresh. Year. We got 2000, a lot of... 2017. We're, we're going to... I know we're going to have a great year this year. I can, uh, I can feel it. Oh, well, great year personally, I, professionally, both. market-wise. And I think, I think our listeners can, too. Right? I think we're, so, too. Yeah, they uh, listen. This is going to be the year. <laughs> For what? I don't know. <laughs> you know, I've um, been reading a little bit more about... Um, you know, individuals wanting to retire in their 40s and 50s. Sure. Right? Because uh, it's unheard of, right? Because people in their 40s and 50s haven't saved. But then you got the millennials. It's like, all right, well, here, you know, I have this job. I'm going to live off of ramen noodles for 10 years and, um, you right. know, save everything I have. Sure. Um, but w- which I find fascinating um, because, but then they, they, if you take a look at most younger people, where are they saving their money? Are they they're not putting money in the stock market? Right, they're putting it in the bank. And right and the in the CD. bank because it's like, all right, well, here I, I experienced the Great Recession and my parents lost the house or lost a bunch of money and all the stress that it caused. So I don't want to do that. But on the other side, well, if you're going to retire at forty, yeah. Right, you may need you that need money a ton for, of money for forty years. Then, but it's not growing. It's not growing. Yeah, inflation. Right. So what every uh, what every thirty years, maybe twenty five, thirty years, costs double, something like that. Yeah, something like that. Right. You know. So um, I don't know. I just lost my train of thought, but <laughs> that will probably happen not, a couple of different times that's today. The, nothing new, right? Oh. So, so what, where do you want to start this show with, Joe Joseph Anderson? Well, let me just kind of recap a little bit of 2016. Okay. I have a little year-end report here. Oh, good. Uh, we had a rocky start, of course, in the beginning of the year. We talked a little bit Boy, about this we? last week. I mean, week. the market went way down. The first what? The first uh, month, I think, in January, that was the worst January in the history of the stock market. Right. Well, we got off, what, 2016, uh, what, 10% in the first two weeks. Right. The worst start since the year 1930. Um, and then the markets bottomed out in mid-February, and then they became a little slow recovery. But then, guess what happened? We had that setback with the UK deciding to leave the Eurozone. Yep, that's um, So we had another hard bump. Then we ended up, what's, um, the Dow ended the year at, what, 19,762. And if I'm not mistaken, Mr. Clopine, I think we're at 20,000. Right? Well, I didn't. Down 20,000? I didn't check on, on Friday. Let's see if I can, while well, we're live on this show. That's when we do our best research when we're live on the show. Well, because the pressure's on. Yeah. <laughs> these guys are like, you idiots. <laughs> well, I got what? It's pretty close. Yeah, Give but, or take a couple of points. Right. So you don't have an exact number? 
Well, it's twenty thousand. Let's just call it. It's very close to that. Okay, all right, I'll go with that. Now people will be listening. Did it really hit twenty thousand? No, it's nineteen thousand nine hundred and eighty something. Yeah, it's 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 within. We'll call it within twenty five. Yeah, twenty five points. I used to like to say dollars. It's in within twenty five yeah, right. dollars in the old days. <laughs> the, yeah, I the say Dow, the, the, the Dow went Jones. up two dollars. <laughs> It's like clopine. And then I got I got booed off the air. Yes, you did. So I had to go back. I go, had to go back and hit the books and study up a little bit more. Oh, well, fourth quarter. So Wilshire 5000, that's kind of the broadest measure of U.S. stocks, was up 4.5% in the fourth quarter of 2016, ending the year up 13%, 13.37%. Right. So if I look at the Russell 3000 index, gained 4.21% in the fourth quarter. And it finished it up at close to 13%, 12.74 for the year. Large cap stocks were up as well. The Wilshire U.S. large cap index gained 4.14% in the fourth quarter and finished the year at 12.5%. The Russell 1000 large cap index closed up 4% again for the fourth quarter and finished the year at 12.05%. The S&P 500, that's what most people kind of take a look at, uh, large company stocks, was up 3.25 in the fourth quarter, finishing up 9.5% for the calendar year of 2016. So the fourth quarter crushed. It sure did. But here's the problem, is that right with the election going on, how many people do you think stayed in the market? A lot of people got out. They were so worried about the Trump effect. And right. the Trump effect turned out to be pretty good. Right. Or either side. It didn't matter. It was like, well, you know, if a Democrat gets in or a Republican gets in, you know, I, I don't know. It's just so much uncertainty. I want to get the heck out of the market. Right. The, right. And all of the gains, the huge gains, almost half the gains happened in just a few weeks. That's correct. So mm-hmm. that's why timing markets is so incredibly difficult. No one guessed this. No one, yes. right? If you looked at the polls, if you looked at everything else, right? Everyone was saying, well, you, everyone knows the market's going to go down if Trump wins. Right. And it went up. It, it, so well, here's how's the that? numbers. <laughs> the Wilshire um, U.S. mid-cap index gained 5% in the fourth quarter. Right. Finishing up 17%. Um, Russell mid-cap index gained 3% in the fourth quarter, up 138 So, I mean, I could go on. What, the small cap index? Eight percent gain, Clopine, in, 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 in the quarter. last three months of the year. Right, total return of twenty-two percent. Wow! So that's why timing markets is you've got to be fully diversified and making sure that you have the right risks at the right times, given your specific goals. So I know I just jotted off a bunch of numbers. I guess to to wrap up twenty sixteen, it was a heck of a wild ride. There was a lot of different things that happened, but at the end of the year, if you stayed true to your investment strategy. You probably ended up with a decent year. What is 2017 going to hold? No one knows. We'll, we'll, we'll have a conversation in a year from now. Right. We'll and tell then, you. And then you listen to the pundits. Oh, well, you know, now Trump's in with the growth effect. Right. So, yeah, pro companies, less taxes. Oh, it's going to be a screaming year. Guess the opposite could happen. It, it sure could. Because here's the, the the anticipation is that's going to happen, right? But let's say he gets in office, and then it's a little bit of lag to try to do all these major changes that he wants to do. Guess what's going to happen to the market? It's going to pull back. Yeah, it may, and that's that's why these things are impossible to to, to decipher because we don't know until it actually happens. Right. And it's now, funny when when it happens, it seems like yeah, of course we knew that, but you don't you don't know until it actually happens. We just talked a little bit of a recap of some of the numbers um, of the overall markets that uh, 2016 gave us. 
And there's a lot of uncertainty when it comes to market, right, um, when you try to forecast. But there's another thing that's kind of difficult when it's time to forecast is what tax law. Okay, So there's a lot of proposals that Trump is bringing to the table. And then there's also some strategies when it comes to retirement planning that's also on the table, such as the stretch IRA. And the stretch IRA basically works like this. If you were to pass away with a retirement account and, it, and you don't, um, if you're not married, and it goes to a non-spouse beneficiary, that individual has the opportunity to stretch out that tax over their lifetime, which is a huge, huge benefit for that beneficiary. Yeah, it sure is, Joe, because now you can take a, an IRA. Let's say you've got a parent that has a big IRA, a million bucks, let's say, and you're, you're an only beneficiary. So you can take that million dollars slowly over your lifetime. That's what a stretch IRA does. So you're 20 years old. You're supposed to live till 80. Just a quick, simple example, 60 years. So one sixtieth of the account has to come out each year. Now, if the stretch goes away, then you got to take that money out in five years. And can you imagine a million dollars divided over five years? That's 200000 a year. It's going to push you up into enormous tax brackets. Right. Because all of that is ordinary income. It will just add on top of whatever wages that your, the non-spouse beneficiary has. Right. So if you have large IRAs, you might want to take a look at some different strategies. But hey, you know what? I um, read this article in Kiplinger's and Rachel Sheedy, she's the editor of the Retirement Report. So I thought, hey, what the heck? Let's get her on the show and kind of dive in a little bit more in the details of what the stretch actually is. Rachel, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Appreciate it. Hey, there's trillions of dollars in retirement accounts, and I think the baby boomer age, we're getting a little bit older. And there's some things that people need to take a look at, especially at death, in regards to a retirement account, because it's a totally different account versus if they just inherit stocks or real estate or anything outside of that shell of a retirement account. What are some things that you're writing about or talking about that people should be aware of? Yeah, there are definitely some, some key points that heirs really need to be aware of that can really maximize an inherited IRA um, if they are aware of these. And there are certain dates that are attached to, there are some deadlines they need to, to know about. So a big key is you know, there are different rules for spousal beneficiaries of an IRA versus non-spouse beneficiaries. Spousal beneficiaries have a lot of leeway. They can essentially take the account as their own, or they can take it as their own if they would like to. Um, Non-spouse beneficiaries can't do that. They've got more rules that they need to pay attention to. There's something to be aware of. And one of the big key things they need to know is that they need to retitle the account. They can't make it their own. They've got to retitle it as an inherited IRA. They need to make sure that their name and the decedent's name um, is listed um, when they retitle it, and they need to make sure it's clear who is who. So that's step number one <laughs> that they need to be aware of. Right, because they might take a look and say, hey, mom or dad have $500,000 in a retirement account. They also had a home for 500000 Well, I sold the home. I can take the cash. and I might as well just roll their retirement account into my own. I mean, that, that, that seems like common sense, but it's the exact opposite. It has to stay in the decedent's name or it could really blow up on them. It would completely blow up. That's definitely a move people should not make. They should not roll that inherited account over um, into their own. If they're a non-spouse beneficiary, they need to retitle as an IRA. So that, that's a big key step to know. Hey, when it comes to spouses, what would you talk about in regards to keeping it, let, let's say, in the decedent's name or rolling it over into the, rolling the decedent spouse into their own? Well, so one of the, the big things is whether the surviving spouse is younger than 59 and a half. If they're younger than 59 and a half, you know, if they need that money, um, if they keep the account as a beneficiary, they can tap it without having to pay an early withdrawal penalty. And that's true for any beneficiary who's 
tapping an inherited um, traditional IRA. So they, they need to think about that. If they want to keep the money, keep it as a beneficiary for a while. And then once they pass age 59 and a half, the surviving spouse can then turn the account into their own. And then it basically just follows the same rules um, as, as if they were the original owner of the account. So there's a lot of flexibility that spousal beneficiaries have. What are some key deadlines that people should be aware of? So uh, a couple of key deadlines. Um, for in IRAs and even Roth IRAs, inherited Roth IRAs, um, heirs, non-spouse heirs must take required distributions um, if they wanted to keep the, you know, stretch, do the stretch IRA, um, which can really maximize, the, you know, the, keeping the money in the retirement shelter. Um, so if they um, want to do that, they need to start taking distributions um, no later than by the end of the year after the year the original owner died. Um, in some cases, there might be multiple beneficiaries of an IRA. Um, and in that case, you want to consider splitting the IRA. Um, if you don't split the IRA, then distributions um, would have to be taken based on the oldest um, beneficiary's life expectancy. So if there's a big difference in ages, say you've got a 60-year-old son and a 22-year-old granddaughter, that 22-year-old granddaughter wants to be able to use her own longer life expectancy. So they need to split the IRA, and they need to do that no later than December 31st of the year after the original owner died. So that, that's another key key date to know. Um, and then also, if there's been a charity that's named as one of the beneficiaries, that um, share can be paid out. And if it's paid out no later than September 30th of the year following the owner's death, then the, um, the non-spouse heir can, again, stretch the IRA over their own lifetime. So there's a charity involved. You want to take care of that share, get that paid out. So, all right, let's say someone passes away with a large IRA. They have three beneficiaries. One's a charity, and then one's um, their child, and one's the grandchild. So I pass away, and then they have until De- or September 30th to distribute the money out to the charity outright. Right. There would be no tax due because it's going to a charity. And then they have until December 31st, the year after I pass away. So it gives them plenty of time then to potentially split the IRAs. And they would want to split the IRAs because then they can stretch the tax liability out over their specific life expectancy. Exactly. And they can also, you know, um, once they make it, they've got it split, they each own their own piece of the IRA. They can devise their own personal investment strategy, and they can name their own beneficiaries. So it's really advantageous in a number of ways to split that, that inherited IRA up. What do you see the pros and cons of potentially having to trust the beneficiary? Um, it, it can be done. It definitely is possible. You need to make sure it's set up properly so that if you want to be able to stretch the IRA still, that it can be done. Um, so it's a matter of you know getting an expert involved. It's a little bit more complicated, but you can do it. Hey, Rachel, this is Al. Uh, it, it's interesting. The uh, the rules are they're so complicated when it comes to IRAs, and so there's rules. If you're a spouse, there's one thing where you can keep it in the decedent's name or put it in your own account. If it's a non-spouse, and so I want to be really clear, so if you're not the spouse, if you're a kid, grandkid, brother, sister, whatever, that's a non-spousal IRA. So then you've got to start taking required minimum distributions, and a lot of people don't realize that even if you're 20 years old, you got to start taking a required minimum distribution. Exactly. Yeah, it is a key point. If you want to be able to keep that IRA alive, you want to be able to you know stretch it out for you know potentially decades if you're a very young heir. Um, you need to start taking required distributions. You can also take out more if you wanted to, but if you take out that minimum amount you can keep that IRA going. Yeah, for- and that's also true for Roth IRAs uh, because the mm-hmm. account owner doesn't have to take a required distribution, but a, a non-spousal beneficiary does, So it's uh, although it's tax-free. 
Right, exactly. So that's the big difference, um, a couple of big differences there. Definitely Roth IRA heirs need to realize that they've got to take distributions even though the owner didn't. And, but those distributions will be tax-free. They are taxable income um, if it's a traditional IRA. So just one advantage if you have to take distributions from an inherited Roth IRA. Hey, Rachel, this is great information. Hey, where can our listeners um, get more information about you and, and read up on what you're currently doing? Um, Kiplinger.com is a great resource. If you go to the retirement section, um, our coverage shows up there. And you can search by different topics, IRA, Social Security, that kind of thing. I mean, there's so much information on uh, Kiplinger's. It's a great site. So uh, thanks a lot, Rachel. Joe, it's uh, I, I've got an unfortunate statistic right now, and that is uh, uh, somewhere around 30% of Americans 55 years and older have neither pension plan nor a dime saved for retirement. A third. A third. Almost a third. One right? third of people 55 and older do not have a pension plan or a dime saved, so 100% of their retirement income and, has and to come is, from this Social Security. And this is not a... a you know, back of the envelope study. This is the U.S. Government Accountability Office. That's their study. And so we know that a lot of folks that are getting close to retirement are ill-prepared. And Joe, uh, I would say at this time of the year, particularly after the beginning of the year, New Year's resolutions, 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 whatever you want, man. (laughs) That's that's a new word. It's your show. Uh, there's some mistakes that you want to avoid, and this is certainly true if you're right near retirement, but this is really true for everybody. But, you know, th- these are mistakes that we see those 55 years and older making. And, and mistake number one is underestimating uh, longevity, because right now people are living a lot longer. A lot of folks, I mean, how many times do we have people come into our office that say, I'm going to live probably until 75. And where do you get that? Well, that's when my dad died, or that's when my mom died. And it's like, well, that was a generation ago. You can almost add five to 10 years to that, I mean, as an average. And then if you take a look at their balance sheet, People that say that, do you think they have a lot of money or very little? Usually not enough. Right, right? because they're, they're just conning themselves. Yeah, it's like, I, I don't have to save because I know uh, I'm going to die Right, early. I'm going to die in my 70s, so I don't need to save. I, I want to, it's like, and then the people that have actually done a good job saving, it's like, you know what? I want this thing to last until I'm age 100. Right. Yeah, exactly. And so I mean, just look at the stats. So 65-year-old individual. So male, uh, the average or the midpoint lives, they live till 84. The female, it's like 88, you know, give or take, sure. right? That's the midpoint, which means half pass earlier, but half live longer. So now I honestly think if you're not planning out to age 95 or more, you're, you're, you're missing the whole point here because we are living longer. And guess what? By the time you get there, chances are we're going to have more medical advances and we're going to live even longer. So if you're thinking you're going to live till 72, I had actually had a case, this was like three weeks ago. A lady said, yeah, I'm going to live till uh, about 72. And she was whatever, 68, four years. Yeah. And, you know, why? And sisters, mothers, they passed away. So that's when I'm going. How, how could you live like that, man? I don't know. <laughs> like four more years. It's like, come on, really? So, but the, I guess the point of this is you may be living a long time in retirement, which is a, actually a good thing. But the flip side of that is you're going to be living a long time in retirement. So you need to have the resources to be able to cover your lifestyle. Save. Save. You got to save. Uh, the second mistake, Joe, is overestimating your wage earning years. And they're talking about uh, for sa- Social Security. Yeah, sa- yeah. Savings retirement's hard because it always involves for, uh, foregoing instant gratification uh, of current spending in exchange for accessing those funds at a future date. 
right? But uh, when you look at a 2015 survey from Voya Financial, they found three out of five workers were unexpectedly forced to retirement retirement early, retire earlier than Three planned. out of four now? Yeah, three out, three out of five. Okay. 60%, th- sorry, three out of five had to retire early. And we've talked about this before, and, and you think, well, how does that happen? Well, <laughs> there's so many reasons. It could be your own health, but it may be your parents' or your spouse' health. you got to take care of them. Or maybe, you know what, the job has passed you by and younger people are taking over. Or maybe your company downsizes or goes out of business. You're depressing me, Al. <laughs> <laughs> But it's, I mean, it's the truth, and it's scary, and everything else. I mean, the, the last thing, we're not trying to put fear in you. We just want you to wake up and say, you know what? Hey, do I have enough capital? Should I start saving? 2017 is a good time to start this. Right. Another one, of course, is saving too late, and we get this all the time. It's like, well, wait, I'm 64 years old. I don't have anything, so what should I do? Well, it would have been better to, to start earlier, but the truth is, you can improve anyone's situation. Any situation can be improved by starting today. Right. But certainly, if you can start earlier, it makes a lot of difference. For yeah, you. but you and I have done studies, Alan, with people that don't have anything saved in their 60s. You know what I mean? Right. And they still have a very comfortable retirement because it's like, okay, well, now it's time to save you got to work longer than you probably anticipated, right? That pushes out your social security. That it, you know, so there's, there's, it's never ever too late to start. Yes, exactly. Because and I think a lot of times they feel this sense of hopelessness, and so they're like, "Well, I'm going to work until I drop, and then that's it." So they don't think about it. And and the truth is, if if it's if you find it impossible to save, start at least small. Just just get the ball rolling, right? And if that's three percent of your salary, start there, and then and then gradually increase that. Now this works better if you're younger, but even if you're older. Right. Go ahead and start doing this right now to get to put yourself in a better position. Joe, here's another mistake: is putting your kids above yourself. Whoa! How many times have you seen that? Huh? <laughs> Never. <laughs> happens all the time and I, and I think there's there's two key ways this happens one is the parents pay for all the college all these student loans and they're paying student loans off in their retirement the second way is the kids move back home and they never get off the payroll mm-hmm. right and so what you're doing is you're funding their lifestyle to the detriment of your own retirement which means that you're going to have to work a lot longer or you're going to really have to have a much lower lifestyle in retirement I'm just going off of memory but there was that study of how much that parents were paying for sports, mm-hmm. right? Oh yeah, I remember you bringing that up. A couple thousand dollars a month, right? And when they looked at the 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 people that were paying the most, a they had nothing saved for college for their college, and zero saved or very little saved for retirement, right? Because all right, well here Junior is going to be you know the next. Derek Jeter, right? <laughs> when the guy can't hit a ball to save his life, but he's gonna, he or she's gonna have a full scholarship. Yeah, full right? scholarship and go pro and take care of me. That's <laughs> so that doesn't that doesn't always happen. In fact, rarely. And the fifth one, Joe, is uh, is not diversifying. So you got some savings, but you put the whole thing in the bank, right? In a in a CD, you're making 0.4 percent. It's not going to get you anywhere in terms of growth and inflation. You know, inflation has been tame lately, but if you look at the last hundred years, inflation is certainly over three percent, closer probably to about three and a half percent, and it's coming back at some point. And if you got your money in just savings accounts, not earning anything, you're you're and and you're going to live a longer time in retirement. This isn't going to work out. Yeah, I think the flip side of that coin too is that um, I see this more, and you and I see this more with the, with higher wage earners that don't have a lot of money saved. 
then they like will roll the dice on one stock or one in- investment idea. It's like, well, here, I need a lot larger rate of return than 6%. So I'm trying to go for broke just to try to catch up that way. And they're taking out way too much risk. So, I mean, there's risks on either side of the spectrum and it's figuring out, all right, well, here, what's a reasonable expectation of return? And then constructing that overall portfolio you know, to, to meet your goals and needs. I mean, it's that simple. I know it sounds simple, but it's not easy to execute because you gotta do a little bit of work. This year we got tax chat with Big Al coming up. It's going to air at 2 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> because it will put you to sleep, guaranteed. You we, like we, the lists. When you get your research for the show. I do. Do you just, do you I just, just Google I just, list? I just type in list, retirement list, and see what pops up. <laughs> uh, well, well, what's, what's, uh, what's the next list we got? The next list? Uh, you want another list? Yeah, because they're so depressing. Here's the five things that you got to do. People are broke. They're living longer. <laughs> <laughs> you know, all their money's going to go to long-term care. Oh, well, I can geez. tell you how. I can tell you to be, how to become a, an extreme saver. Oh, let's do it in 2017. All right, extreme, extreme. Okay, and I think spend you, less you, than what you make. Yes, and save more. All right, done. Right? Let's get. Let's. What's the extreme? That that got your eye. <laughs> it did get my eye. There's all kinds of tips here. So here's number one, and these are kind of. A, basic obvious but i think they're they're worth repeating uh which is treat your savings funds like any other bill in other words you pay your mortgage you pay your utility bill make sure that you pay yourself in your savings account each and every month be as serious about your mortgage payment uh as savings as your mortgage payment pay yourself first yeah that's exactly right i like it so we've said that before. Yes. It's a good thing. I think it's a great... I mean, yeah. I mean, if, if you put it in that... I mean, some people need to have these analogies or, you know, to, to put it in that mindset. Yeah. It's like, all right, well, you're... Well, for most of us, we're not, not going to pay our mortgage payment because there's severe consequences that happens there. You'll That's be homeless. correct. And if you don't pay your utility bill, the electricity right. shut off, water right. bill and so forth, cable, you don't <laughs> want to ha- miss your TV shows, right? Oh, my God. I was just remembering this couple... Um, hypothetically, that I was sitting down with, and uh, th- this um, individual made a ton, four hundred thousand bucks a year. Okay, right? spends everything. Okay, and we, we've seen that before. Oh, they have very little savings, mortgaged up the hill, right? And then it's like, all right, well, what are you guys get? No, he, and he blew up his um, retirement account, um, trading options. Okay, like he he took distributions out, paid the tax, trade some options. Like he. Totally didn't know what the heck he was doing. Right. Didn't tell the spouse. Right. And then so we're going through it. And I was like, okay, well, here, you make 400000 This is workable. You can do this. Right. Right. And then we're going through their expenses. Right. And so they're not extreme savers. They're extreme spenders. Yes. And she's like, well, yeah. Well, you got that Pandora Extra. <laughs> and I was like, are you kidding me? Cash you an extra $30 a year. <laughs> it was like, what? That's like six bucks. <laughs> God. No, that's not that's not putting you over the edge there, honey. <laughs> God. Oh boy, you know, I, 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 you know was, it is. It, yeah, and then then it becomes marriage counseling, oh, doesn't it? That was all that was. It was like I'm not licensed for this. <laughs> I'll try my best, but I'm yeah. That's that shouldn't be our job. Here's another one: automate your savings program. Have you heard about 401k, 403b? Boy, do that automatically. It comes out of your pay. You don't even miss it. Yep. Now a lot of companies don't have 401ks. Or organizations don't have 403Bs, so just do it yourself. Have an auto withdrawal from your checking account into a savings account that you don't have a debit card for. Right. So it's hard to get the money out, right? That's the point. Right. It just pauses you when you want to try to have an impulse buy. Right. You know? 
Uh, but yeah, the, the the invention of the four hundred one k is is such a great thing, and you know all this BS I hear too about all right, well this four hundred one k has you know this fees and we're gonna sue and this and that or whatever. It's like if you have a four hundred one k that it has a little bit higher fee than another four hundred one k. Trust me, that's not your biggest worry, because you have a plan that you can put money in out of sight, out of mind. That's pre tax or after tax if you have a Roth plan, sure. right? That that will give you automatic savings. Uh, right, Alan, two people, two individuals. One person worked for a company for 35 years making, let's say, $70,000 was the peak earning years, but worked for a company for 35 years that had a 401k. Sure. Let's say you have another individual that made $200,000 a year at another company, right? Sure. But did not have a 401k. 35 years later, who do you think has more money saved? Yeah, likely the one with the 401k. Absolutely. Every single time because it's out of sight, out of mind. It's... So, yeah, I mean, then you could get in the nitty gritty about, all right, well, this has 25 bases higher fee than this one. I mean, yeah, you, you gotta I mean, just, I think it's going overboard you, a little bit. It is. got to save in the first place. So here's one that would, maybe it applies to you. Marry well. Yeah. Marry well. I'm going to uh, try to. <laughs> still out there. Sure, uh, it helps to marry someone well off, but uh, no, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about make sure your spouse or future spouse feels the same way about saving as you do, right? You're a saver. You married someone that isn't. Yeah. That might not be, or maybe if you're a spender, maybe you want to marry a saver. Maybe you want to have someone different. Get, give you some discipline. Yeah, they will blow like, each other uh, up. Like Cat Stevens looking for a hard-headed woman. I'm looking for a hard-headed woman. Yeah, that's that's what that if you're a spender, maybe that's what you got to do, or a gal with a guy, whatever, doesn't matter. Cat uh, Stevens, I'll throw out little Cat Stevens. Yeah, start saving small amounts. We actually talked about this last segment. Maybe it's it's hard for you to save fifteen percent of your salary, which, by the way, is what we would recommend. That that would be a goal. But you're not there. You're you're 31 years old. You're 40 years old. Whatever. You're not saving anything. Start with three percent. Next year, bump it up to four or five percent. Then six, and then eight, ten percent. Get to that point. But the thing is, you got to start. And if you don't start, it will never happen. Right. And if you if you do that three percent, all of a sudden you won't really miss it. It's amazing. If it's not in the checking account, you you'll, you'll still eat. You'll still pay your bills. You'll figure it out, right? Absolutely. And and uh, so anyway. And I think people will, you know, if if they lost their job, people are survivors. You know what I mean? And especially people that make a ton of money that don't have anything saved. That's who I worry about. It's like, all right, you've been living high on the hog here. Right? We have professional athletes that are right and just trying to figure out the budget. Right. Right. <laughs> it's it's crazy. Um, hey, Social Security's got what a couple of different tweaks, huh? Well, every year they 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 have some changes, and I guess if you look at updates for this year, Joe, there is an increase. Yeah, uh, speaking but, of sexy, uh, but, that's from Mary Beth Franklin. <laughs> yeah, that's right, huh? It is from Mary Beth. How'd you know? Yeah. So our increase, Joseph, uh, is point three percent, which to put in. Um, in dollar terms, the average retirement worker will get a $5 monthly benefit increase. Killed it. Five, $5. <laughs> there you go, Pat. PBR me. <laughs> ASAP. PBR. <laughs> That'll buy a case, right? <laughs> yeah. A month? At least a can. <laughs> At least a can. <laughs> but here's the problem. The, the Medicare premium uh, went for, up. for the average went up about $4 a month. Solid. So you're only getting a buck. Yeah. You get, so you might not even get a can of PBR. Yeah, right. Maybe really... a six-ounce draft at the local <laughs> dive bar. <laughs> 
maybe. Maybe. Yeah, I think you get a like, sip. Like on a Sunday from 1030 to 11. Special, you got, you, super special. Race. You got to hurry up and get there. So oh, Jeff, we did that. So I worked at a bar in uh, Gainesville, Florida. I went to University of Florida. Yeah. And so Sun- we did. Sunday morning spe- church, oh, church special? We had, well, NASCAR, big NASCAR oh, okay. people yeah. back in Gainesville. Okay. So, yeah, we would sell these Molson, Molson Ice. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I mean, it was just awful beer. Well, I'm sorry. I don't mean to offend <laughs> anyone that enjoys that Molson that. Ice. All our listeners. What, <laughs> are you, what are you talking about? What are you talking that's, about? Molson ever. Ice. Oh, it was cheap. It just stunk, you know, and it was like six bucks for like this little six ounce like glass. Yeah. Okay. Place is packed. <laughs> packed. And I'm just by the, just pouring six ounce drafts all day long. Six ounce. Okay. Yeah. And I probably poured 10,000 of them. Yeah. Made eight bucks. <laughs> So hence you decide to go into financial planning, yeah, right, yeah. and and have you know, start your career. Six ounces for I think it was yeah for a buck. Six for a buck. Well, there see there you go. Yeah. So you go back to Gainesville yeah, and there get you go. That, you with that buck that yeah, you get eleven thirty to ten thirty to eleven special. There now what go. what they're saying is this is the smallest annual increase since the automatic uh, cost of living adjustments beca- began in nineteen seventy five. Although. There was actually three years where there was no increase. I guess you really have to count those. 2010, 2011, 2016, there was no increase Well, whatsoever. because there's no inflation. Right. That's exact because it's calculated well, based on inflation. Well, you know, I'm going to get an email from that. <laughs> yeah, what? You, you don't think there's inflation? Well, do what you're... It's, yeah, it's, there, well, I, according to what the CPI index, yeah, that that the Social Security Administration uses, and you can argue it's not tr- a true, true reflection, yes, but and they I have, would agree with that. Yeah, we, we could. Yeah, I, me too, actually. But anyway, that's how they do it. So how about this? The uh, for high income workers, Joseph, the uh, the the FICA tax wage base went from one hundred eighteen thousand five hundred to one hundred twenty seven thousand two hundred. Went up about eighty-seven hundred dollars. So that means that, like, let's say you make one hundred fifty thousand dollars last year, your Social Security was only withheld on the first hundred eighteen thousand five hundred, and then there is no Social Security after that. Now it's one hundred twenty-seven thousand two hundred. So in other words, more of your money, more of your wages are going to go to the Social Security Administration as a high wage earner. Well, yeah, that increase was what's the percentage? That's a uh, pretty large that, percentage. That's, that's about a seven percent increase, give, yeah. or, give or take six, maybe. Anyway, um, now I will say the Medicare part of Social Security. So Social Security, by the way, that's six point two percent of your wages. So if you make a hundred thousand bucks, six thousand two hundred dollars is withheld for Social Security. The Medicare part is one point four five percent. So make a hundred thousand dollars, that's one thousand four hundred fifty dollars. Now there is no cap on Medicare, so I don't. You know, you're an athlete and you make, you got this big contract, ten million bucks. You got to pay the one point four five percent on that whole ten million dollars. Although the six point two Social Security part, that only goes now to the one twenty seven two. Well, with the Affordable Care Act too, isn't there another increased premium on that? That's over a that's certain dollar. Absolutely threshold? right. And and so for a single taxpayer over two hundred thousand, you got to pay an extra point nine percent. And call for, it one. yeah, call it one. Okay, good. I, I like how you round. Yeah. And then a married uh, couple that's it's over two hundred fifty thousand. So yeah, you got those amounts as well. Um, two thousand seventeen, uh, Social Security beneficiaries that are under full retirement age, 
there's a certain limit as to how much earned income they could have. So 62 to 66, let's say, if you take it early, you take that permanent haircut, but also if you have earned income, they're also going to reduce that threshold. That's right. And for 2017, it's one, it's 16,920. So 17 grand versus 15. That's right. It went up about $1,200 last year. So in other words, you can now earned income. Let's explain that. That's if you have salary, that's a job. That's if you have a business that you're involved with the self-employment, that's earned income. Now you can be 62 and make a million bucks, but it's from investments or whatever, then that's not necessarily earned income. You still get your full social security. But if you are working, you're 63 years old and you've got a job where you're making 50 grand a year, well, you don't need to take your social security because you don't get any anyway. Hey, got a great guest, Big Al. We got Douglas McCormick on the line. Family Inc. Family Inc. Great book. It is a great book. It's all about uh, families and what they ought to be doing with their finances. I mean, it's just looking at it maybe with a different lens when it comes to a family CFO. I mean, you've been a CFO of many companies. I have, and and of course, that's why I can relate to the book because I have been a CFO, and I think the CFO function is, is critical. Douglas, welcome to the show, my friend. Hey, thanks very much. Glad to be here. Hey, well, tell us a little bit about yourself and what made you write the book Family Inc.? Uh, well, I think in many cases, my life experience is, is a, a product of why I think uh, a framework like Family Inc. needs to exist. So, you know, I, I'm an undergrad from West Point. I was an active duty Army officer for five years. And after that time, decided that, um, you know, a military career was not for me. And so I went back to business school at Harvard. And I graduated with a master's degree in finance and then um, worked um, on Wall Street for a couple years. And, you know, really, in spite of all that great experience, never had um, what I consider to be a good kind of foundation in in personal finance. And so I think uh, today it's one of the biggest problems in America is financial literacy. And our traditional education system is not doing a good job of of teaching these principles. And so for me, the Family Inc. uh, kind of framework, if you will, is an elegant way to help people think about all the competing choices that they have out there with um, their their assets and their their finances. You, you know, there's probably at last count uh, personal finance books. There's so many of them out there. It's like if I want to get an exercise book or fitness book. I mean, that's a trillion dollar industry, and still we have an obesity problem. And there's billions of books out there when it comes to personal finance, and we still have a, a you know financial literacy problem. Why is your book different? Well, I think um, my my objective is not to give you answers, but to teach people how to think so they can get their own answers. And you know, the, the I think that what is unique about Family Inc. is the fact that it provides people a framework. And essentially, just to, to for the listeners' benefit, the premise of the book is that um, all families could look at themselves like a business, and each family has predominantly two big assets. They have their labor assets, and they have their financial assets. And the name of the game is to manage those assets, to you know, do all the things you want to do in life, and when it's come time to retire, to have you know, capital to support your consumption. And I think the great thing about that framework is you know, businesses have been dealing with these kind of decisions um, for many years. There's all kinds of good established best practices. And when you look at the family that way, it really allows you to borrow many of those tools and best practices that have been kind of time-tested in business. Doug, uh, give us give us a sample of some of the things that families ought to be looking for or looking to do. Well, um, let me give you some of the big big mistakes in my mind. First of all, I think you can't really talk about financial independence or financial security if you're not thinking about how to maximize your labor potential. 
And, you know, when's the last time financial advisors uh, proactively talked to clients about are they managing their career, are they making good investments in things like education or entrepreneurship? Um, I think another thing the book does a good job of is helping people focus on the right time frame. So, for example, when you think about um, how your career is going or you think about your investment returns, everybody wants to talk about this year or next year or last year. And the reality is um, that game is a many, many year game. And so to think about your performance, not um, in terms of how you got paid this year, but in terms of lifetime compensation, I think that's a very important change in time horizon. Yeah, I think it's also about uh, decisions that you're making as you go along. Sometimes little decisions can make a big difference. Absolutely. Um, And, you know, I think one of the things I really preach in the book is a, a family CFO's job is much much broader than simply how you manage your investments or how you budget. You know, it's things like managing your risk. It's things like training the next generation in the family to be good stewards of your capital. And it's things like investments in education and, and entrepreneurship. You, you know, how you calculate net worth, you're taking a look at, you know, the, the value of their labor. You know, that's a pretty interesting way to look at, you know, someone's overall net worth. By doing that, what changes do you think people would make? Well, I think, first of all, it highlights um, a really interesting circumstance for, for many Americans, which is your largest asset is likely your labor. And for you to really accumulate wealth, um, you're likely to do it because you're making good decisions about your labor. Um, and I think, you know, the other thing that's interesting about that that paradigm is it demonstrates that for um, young people who have the least financial capital, in many cases, they have the most wealth because they've got more time, uh, you know, kind of available to make decisions about um, their careers. You, you know, when you look at it, Alan, and I see many, many people, and it's like we ask them, it's like, well, what do you think your biggest asset is? You know, you know we live in Southern California, and nine times out of 10, what do you think people tell us? It's their home, right? Uh, but but it's their ability to earn an income. It's the t- you know two hundred thousand dollar income that they have, and, and they don't necessarily look at it a- as an asset in what that potential asset can do for them in regards to wealth. So, um, I-, I think if people looked at that a little bit differently, um, maybe the you know the financial crises that be- we're going to see people approaching retirement with barely a nickel to their name, um, it- we might be in a little bit better spot. Yeah, I think the other thing it it does is it helps you, um, I think, more rigorously think about what the right asset allocation is and what the right risk profile is. So in in the way I look at net worth, it's not only um, your labor value, but I include things like your house, obviously, but also your expected Social Security. And we can debate the value of your labor. We can debate the benefits of Social Security. But I think in aggregate, we can all agree those are real assets for the family. And so, you know, one of the byproducts of the framework for me is I, I generally recommend folks embrace more equity exposure than uh, traditional advisors would suggest. And I think that's because when you look at all those assets, labor and Social Security behave much more like fixed income or an annuity than they do in equity. And they really are assets that I think um, the family gets to use over the course of that um, retirement period. You know, I I would agree with you 100%. How how would you calculate that? So for our listeners is saying, all right, well, here, maybe I shouldn't be you know, now that I'm retired, collecting my fixed income, maybe I have a small pension, Social Security, but I'm also maybe heavily weighted in, in, in fixed income, bonds, cash, CDs. 
How would they look at that maybe a little bit differently uh, from a numbers perspective and say, all right, well, here, I have a certain dollar figure when it comes to my Social Security. How would you do that calculation to see what would be the appropriate asset mix in regards to equities? Yeah, so, um, you know, both Social Security and labor, you can roughly calculate similarly, which is you kind of make assumptions about either how long your working career is or um, how long you're likely to live based on, you know, some kind of published life expectancy table. And then you project, you know, what is your either your future income and some kind of growth rate and some kind of tax rate, or in Social Security, you project what your future benefit is, and you essentially discount that back um, with some adjustment for inflation. Uh, and so what I would tell you is, um, first of all, on FamilyInc.com, there's calculators for both your labor and your Social Security. So I've tried to make that relatively easy. The second is, I promise you, the estimate you come up with will be wrong. And it's less about projecting a specific number and more about thinking about that asset in the context of your overall plan, because it's going to be directionally right. Right. And um, one last thing, West Point, uh, yeah, a little Army-Navy game, did you... Oh, man, I tell you what, um, I, it was a long time coming, and I'm very happy for the win. Having said that, I'm going to do my best to be humble because we are 1-15, and and so um, I'm going to take my win and, and hope that we're on a good trend line. That was a phenomenal game, man. That was, um, yeah, I was definitely yeah. uh, rooting for, you know, we're in San Diego, so we're a big Navy town. Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, but well, big I, military was, town, I would say. You know, uh, it, with the, it was a great game, and I'll tell you, I think the thing that's even better than the game is the school spirit and the way these young men and women, um, you know, really um, embrace what is best about about our country. Hey, one last thing, I guess, is that we have a lot of military that um, you know that that live here in San Diego. And when you look at that, um, in, in, of course, you went, um, you, you served our country, which thank you very much for doing that. But I think military individuals have a little bit tougher time when it comes to, um, you, you know, when it comes to financial planning and financial literacy, in a sense, because they might be traveling and then maybe they're married and maybe the spouse can't work because they're constantly moving. I mean, what's some, what advice would you give our servicemen and women here? Yeah, well, first of all, thanks for asking. One of my primary objectives for doing the book is uh, to support the military community um, and the veteran community with um, a good framework to help think about navigating transition. And I think, first of all, the big thing I'd say for the military community is you have to acknowledge that your circumstances are different from mainstream America, and so your plan must be different. And you mentioned some of those, some of those differences. You know, 83% of veterans will transition uh, pre-retirement with no retirement benefit. Um, most veterans uh, start a family slightly earlier. They have a less professionally developed network because of frequent moves given the military. Uh, and in many cases, the spouses are unemployed or underemployed. And so understanding all those things, as well as the unique assets that veterans have, like this tremendous experience and the GI Bill, um, you know, they, they can have you know, what I believe to be um, really good economic prospects, but it really starts with understanding those differences. I think the family work framework um, can also be applied to their circumstances. um, Here's what I want to do. Anyone that has served our country um, and call our number, I will buy you personally a book of Family Inc. Uh, Here's the number, 888 
888-994-6257. Call that number, um, and then Alan will buy that book <laughs> oh, um, for, <laughs> for anyone that observed our country. I will, uh, it's a, it, it's a great read, it's, it's, it, and it's so logical. Um, Doug, thank you so much uh, for your service. Thank you so much for writing this book, and uh, thank you so much for your time today. Hey, thank you for the, the kind words and the, the very generous offer for our veteran community. Appreciate it. Joe and Big Al are always willing to answer your financial questions. Email info at purefinancial.com. Favorite part of the program is that we're uh, about to take some email questions from a little site called Investopedia. Have you ever check it out? I mean, it's a pretty good site. Um... They send me questions. They say, hey, some people submitted a bunch of questions. Can you answer them? I say, sure. We say it on the air, and then we have a little talk. Because some of these questions are kind of funny. They are funny, and some are, I'd say in most cases, we don't quite have enough information, but we do our best with what we have. Yeah, so we can stretch these things out. (laughs) Or you can just switch the station right now. (laughs) Sure, but I think most people love this stuff, Al, because they might have a similar question. Well, you're right about that, and maybe they're afraid to ask. All right, let's uh, let's get to this. Okay, what do you got? All right, I am uh, currently contributing to a company-sponsored 401k plan. Okay. I contribute 8% um, annual salary of 60K. Okay. Uh, which comes out to $4,800 per year. Okay. Can I also set up and contribute to a Roth IRA? If so, what can I contribute? Okay. A Roth IRA, that's the, the answer is absolutely yes. A Roth IRA, you can contribute $5,500 uh, per year. Now, if you're 50 and older, you get a $1,000 catch-up, so you can do $6,500. You know what, though, Joe? Your 401k... There, his, his, his or her 401k may have a Roth option on it, right? right? And then in that case, you can contribute, if you're under 50, $18,000 total. You already got 4800 in. Let's call it 5000 just easy math. So you can do about another $13,000 in the Roth side of your 401k if it has that option. Make 60 grand, Al. I know, but maybe, <laughs> so, maybe just jam maybe, everything that you make. Maybe he listened, into your retirement account. Maybe he listened to the extreme savings segment. <laughs> yeah, a yeah couple, exactly. A couple segments no. ago. Anyone that going, asks you a question, he's going. He's going. Yeah, Big Al, I want to do extreme savings. Where should I put it? Well, let's do this. Uh, he's at eight percent, and then he wants to go Roth IRA. I think that's good. But here, I guess the point of this is if you fully fund a 401k, you can fully fund a Roth IRA if you're under the income limits. Correct. Right? So there's qualifications for the Roth IRA. 2017, Al, do you know the numbers? Uh, no, but it's 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 about 118,000, I think, is where it starts phasing out. Probably 118, out. 134 for yeah, single? Yeah, I think that's the phase out for single. For married, it's probably 185 to 195. They, they probably increase it a buck. We're, we know last year, so we're adding 1,000 to it. Yeah, uh, yeah. All right, so um, so th- that's a good point. Is both plans can be funded, also yeah. spousal uh, plans. So let's say this is that you have one spouse working, one that is not working, right? <clears throat> you contribute to your four hundred one k. You can also contribute to a Roth IRA. Your spouse that's not working could also contribute to a Roth IRA, right. even though that that spouse doesn't have earned income. Yeah, yeah, you can use the spousal income. So in this example, let's say he or she is under 50. So that's $18,000 into the 401k, $5,500 into uh, his or her uh, Roth IRA, and then the spouse could do $5,500. So man, now we're up to about 29000 bucks if you want to, into retirement accounts. 
are stock dividends and stock splits taxed? Okay, uh, that's the question. That is the question. Stock dividends are taxed, uh, and I, they may be referring to I got a I got a dividend in a stock, but I, I'm reinvesting it. Maybe that's what they're thinking. And so when that happens, is it's as if you received the cash and then put it back and bought shares. That's how this works with stock dividends. So yes, those are taxable, and. What was the second part? Stock splits. Stock splits. Stock splits. No, there's no taxation on stock splits. So, because nothing really happens. Yeah. What the, your stock price changes. So so let's say you got ten thousand shares, uh, and it's a dollar share, ten thousand bucks. It splits. Now you got twenty thousand shares, but now it's fifty cents a share, right? So that's that's how it it just changes the amount of shares that you have, what they're worth, and your cost basis per share. Everything just changes pro rata. Right. The dollar figure doesn't change, so there would not be a taxable event. Correct. Because, as Al said, let's say if it's a dollar share, 10,000 shares, that's $10,000. Well, it splits. Now it's 50 bu- or fifty cents a share, and you got right. 20,000 20, shares. shares. You still have $10,000 of value. Yeah, there, exactly. There's Yeah, there's no taxable consequence there. But, yeah, the good point with stock dividends is that they don't necessarily, most people don't realize it until they get that 1099, right, from the custodian or, right. or the, the, the company until the, it's just like, well, I didn't receive any income. Yeah, why do I have to pay tax? Why do I have to pay tax? And so those those stock dividends, yeah, and and so here, here's what's interesting: people don't realize this when you're when you're reinvesting, it's like you're you're taking that income and buying back into that same investment, and so then when you sell it, your cost basis is going up because you're investing in it each and every quarter. Let's say as you receive those dividends. Uh, another, so, yeah, I'm so, so I'm just going to say, so you bought an investment for ten thousand bucks, and and five years later you sell it. Well, maybe your tax basis is eleven thousand or twelve thousand because of all these stock dividends so yes it's tax but it also increases your tax basis yeah yeah which is kind of a weird term but that's true so it means when you do sell that investment you'll have less gain right because Because you already already paid some tax you you kind of pay tax along the way as you go a couple of things too with dividends um it depends on what the portfolio looks like because you're only taxed on dividends if it's outside of a retirement account True. If it's inside your IRA 401k and there's dividends that are distributed, um, and then you reinvest those dividends, it's a tax-deferred account. You're not going to pay taxes on that until you distribute money from the account. Then you're taxed at full. I mean, ordinary, ordinary income. Right. If you have qualified dividends, now you have a special capital gains rate. Yeah, versus non-qualified dividends. That is true, and that's a fairly new concept, Joe. Maybe I don't know a decade ago, we qualified dividends came. It was it was during President Bush, George W. Bush. This new concept, maybe it was 15 years ago. I don't know, uh, where a dividend that you receive from a U.S. company gets preferential treatment, gets preferential capital gain treatment, which is a lower tax rate. The tax rate for capital gains for most people is 15 percent. Some people pay 20 percent if they're in a high bracket. Some people actually pay nothing if they're in a low enough tax bracket, but that's a lot better than the regular tax rates that currently go up to 39.6%. So so to get that preferential treatment is great. Now, that's if it's outside of a retirement account. If it's inside of your retirement account, there's no preferential treatment. When you take money out of your IRA or 401k, it's taxed as ordinary income in all cases, unless, I should, shouldn't say all, unless you have basis. In other words, maybe you open up an IRA where you, where you are not allowed to take a tax deduction so that when you pull money out of that IRA, not all of it's taxable because you didn't get some benefit when you put the money in. There's another case too. Okay. If I have company stock inside my 401k plan. Oh, that's true. And you, hey, you, you ought to go there? <laughs> I guess so. What the hell? <laughs> so, yeah. in, t- in two minutes or less. 
But uh, yeah, so let's say if you have company stock inside your 401k plan, another strategy that you could do is you could take that stock, right, out of the 401k plan, put it into a brokerage account. You pay tax on the basis, so whatever you paid for, let's say you paid a dollar share and now it's trading at $10 a share. Well, if you move the share out, you pay a tax on a dollar, but there's still $9 of appreciation because now the, the, the stock is worth $10 a share. Right. So you pay tax on the buck, but then that $9 of appreciation now is taxed at capital gains rate versus ordinary income coming out of the retirement account. So net unrealized appreciation is another phenomenal strategy to get that tax diversification that people need um, in regards to creating that income in yeah. retirement. Yeah, Joe, and, and that's that has to be a 401k only. It can't be company stock in your IRA. And if you roll over your 401k to an IRA, that strategy is lost. So if you are near retirement and have company stock, net unrealized appreciation is something that you absolutely want to think about. I have an um, interesting one here. Okay. Can I use life insurance like a Roth IRA? Okay. Okay. All right. I make too much money to contribute to a Roth IRA. However, I would like to save more in a tax saver manner. Okay. Okay. I've, the tax, spelling's not that great. Tax here. efficient manner, I think, is what they meant. <laughs> yeah, but we'll roll. go with tax saving manner. Uh, Sabor. Sabor. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I've heard I can use life insurance like a Roth. How do I do this? And is it a good idea? Oh, that's a great question. Well,. <laughs> I'll start with the answer is yes, you can. And then, Joe, you can say why it may or may not be a good idea. So so certain life insurance policies allow you to put more money into them than the actual life insurance premium. So you start building up a cash surrender value. And you can, in, in many cases, invest that how you see fit. It grows inside that life insurance policy. There is no current taxation. And then you get to a point where you retire. It's a, If it's a big enough balance, you can actually borrow against that. Uh, and that's tax-free. So it's kind of, in essence, like a Roth IRA. And you do hear a lot of life insurance agents talking about this. But there's some there's some issues there. Yeah, I mean, there's pros and cons to any type of strategy that you take a look at. So if you look at it on the surface, it's like, Alan, he, you know, I don't know if you listened to a couple episodes ago, but the big wallet on Big Al. <laughs> well, that's what you inferred because I did a 15-year mortgage and, I, and I'm fully funding fully, my 401k. Fully funding this 401k, so I must be making backdoor a, Roth IRAs I must be and just jamming all this money ton. everywhere. It's like, wow, look at the big wallet on Big Al. <laughs> so... So, um, all right, so Big Al, right? He, he makes a lot of money, and he's already fully funding his 401k plan. Yeah. He's jamming a bunch of money towards mortgage. He's going to be debt-free before you know it. It's like, all right, well, where else can I save some money? I really like tax-free. So, all right, well, here, how about you do this? You can take X amount of dollars after tax, just like a Roth. It can go into an account. It will grow tax-deferred, and when you pull it out, it will be tax-free. But with this particular strategy, there's no 59.5% you know, 10% penalty if you pull it out prior to 59 and a half. There's no limits to your income. You can make as much as you want. You could fund it with, you know, there's no $5,500 limit. You could put 10000 dollars $20,000, dollars $100,000 a year into this particular product. All of that grows tax-free. And then when you pull it out, you get a tax-free income for life. Okay, so sounds great. So, right? Yeah. But there's a cost to this. It's called the cost of insurance. And it's not as glamorous as it might sound, as I just explained it, because you have to really dive into the details here, right? Because A, first of all, it's an after-tax contribution. So if you're in a high tax bracket, you have to put that into effect. If you have other retirement accounts, why don't you do that and do a Roth conversion? 
right? Because you're paying tax to get into a tax-free vehicle with no cost of insurance. A, then you get into the cost and fees and the structure of the you know those policies. They're very very expensive, um, like just the mutual fund charges and the type of investments. Oh, unless you get into like an indexed UL or whatever. Um, just a full um, disclosure: Al and I do not sell life insurance. We're not licensed insurance people. We're just very knowledgeable about all sorts of different financial planning strategies. There you go. Yes, compliance. that's that. compliance. Good job. So yes, so I think it sold like that. It was like okay, well here it's like a super Roth IRA. I've heard terms like that right or you know they call it i forget under what section of the 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 irs code that life insurance death benefit is tax-free so they say well what about an hr 147 plan or whatever the 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 code is 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 it 419 or 412 the the 412 i's and the 419's all those blew up too right yeah you're right yeah and this is very um common in the I, I think in the financial planning life insurance world of using these particular products sure you could use a variable universal life and index universal life um, I'm not saying that sometimes it may work I would say 90% of the policies that Alan and I have seen with a strategy like that they didn't fund them correctly they were over um, exaggerated in regards to right how much that that policy would actually earn in form of rate of return. Right, because when you get the policy, you get what's called an illustration that assumes that you are going to earn 8% or whatever the number is that the agent put in there for you. And you're thinking, oh, I'm going to earn 8%. And you're right, Joe, these, these uh, life insurance products generally have some fairly high costs. And it's it, part of it's the cost of life insurance right, itself. Right, because as I, as I age, right. so when, uh, the, the cost of insurance increases because I'm closer to my life expectancy. Right, and so yeah, you, you, you don't realize that. So now you're 70, ready to start pulling money out, but the cost of life insurance to keep this policy in force goes up each and every year. And so that's honestly what we've seen is, is more often than not, it's, you don't quite get the benefit that you thought you were going to get. Right, because a it might have been illustrated to say, hey, this thing is going to earn ten percent gross, but then net of all fees, it's only like five. Right, right, and then they and- don't fully fund it, right? Because the illustration shows, hey, you have to fund this thing by you know forty thousand dollars for the next twenty years. Right, and then guess what? After two years, they don't they stop doing it, and then they keep that eighty thousand dollars into the overall policy. They got a million, to, you know. F- couple million dollar death benefit so there's i would say there's more cons than pros Uh, i would highly suggest you talk to a independent um like fiduciary that doesn't sell life insurance because if you go to another life insurance agent to say hey does this make sense they're gonna say yeah but this policy stinks buy this one yeah i got a better one i got a better one yeah i think is it fair to say that that most fiduciary fee only financial planners would probably not recommend this strategy. I would say that is equivocally 100% they, they would never recommend that strategy. <laughs> yes, I, I would agree with you. And, and we are fee-only It's it, because, in other words, there's no commission to be earned. If, if someone has a commission... Because I can... I, I tell you what, Al, is that to, to look at what that individual is trying to do, there's better ways to, to create that income. Plus, let's say if I have a non-qualified account, all right? So the taxation on exchange-traded funds or institutional-type shares or even individual securities, the taxation on that is very, very low. If you have 
actively managed loaded funds, right, which I'm sure a life insurance agent might also recommend to you, they have a high turnover. And then the taxation on those outside of retirement accounts cause unnecessary tax, and it puts a weight down on the overall portfolio. So they'll say, no, you can shelter it. It'll grow tax deferred for you. So all that growth will continue to go in the policy. But nowadays, I mean, you could be extremely tax efficient in your brokerage account by tax loss harvesting, tax gain harvesting, using different investment vehicles that don't create that tax. And then, then you look at, all right, well, here, do I have a large IRA or 401k or 403b or TSP balance? I can convert that into a Roth IRA and have that grow 100% tax-free. It will give you the same impact without the huge cost of insurance and all the internal costs and fees. Right, because you're, you're paying for that insurance even if you don't really want it. Right. You're, you're, you're trying to create tax-free insurance income. Well, yes, the life insurance contract will do that. But if you, if there's no need for the insurance, absolutely don't do this. But if you do need the insurance, it may work. May, may. <laughs> Can I stretch that thing up? May work. May work. That's that's right. So, you know, never say never. Yeah, that's true. And, and I'm sure it, it has worked from time to time. Our experience is it doesn't generally work as promised. Yes, I would agree with that statement. Wow, we spent 10 minutes on life yeah. insurance. Yeah, we did. All right. Didn't expect to, but we did. <laughs> All right. Hey, um, hopefully you enjoyed the program. Um, Al and I certainly enjoy doing it every week. Well, every other week, usually. We're going to have a little energy today. Next yeah. week, we'll probably be... Be awful. Awful. <laughs> or upset with each other. Yeah, something. Um, something like that. All right, we got to go. Uh, time's up. Hey, have a wonderful weekend. We'll see you next week. Uh, we got more great guests lined up. Uh, For Big Al Clopin, I'm Joe Anderson. Check out purefinancial.com for more information about us. We'll see you next week. So to recap today's show, you might want to take Cat Stevens' lead and get yourself a hard-headed partner when it comes to money. If you're retirement age, give a big thanks to the folks at Social Security for that extra five bucks a month. And if you want to know all about life insurance from someone who doesn't sell it, just ask Joe and Big Al. Special thanks to Rachel Sheedy from Kiplinger's who taught us about stretch IRAs and Family Inc. author Doug McCormick who gave us tips for running our families like businesses. Listen next week for more Your Money, Your Wealth presented by Pure Financial Advisors, a registered investment advisor. This show does not intend to provide personalized investment advice through this broadcast and does not represent that the securities or services discussed are suitable for any investor. Investors are advised not to rely on any information contained in the broadcast in the process of making a full and informed investment decision. Your Money, Your Wealth opening song Motown Gold by Carl James Pestcut is licensed under a Creative Commons license.